Chapter One of the Three Hostages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Three Hostages by John Buchan. Chapter One Dr. Greenslade Theorizes. That evening, I remember as it came up through the mill meadow. I was feeling particularly happy and contented. It was still mid-March, one of those spring days when noon is like May and the only cold, pearly haze at sunset warns a man that he's not done with winter. The season was absurdly early, where the blackthorn was in flower and the hedge roots were full of primroses. The partridges were paired, the rooks were there as well, with their nests, and the meadows were full of shimmering gray flocks of fieldfares on their way north. I put up a half a dozen snipe on the boggy edge of the stream, and in the bracken in stern wood I thought I saw a woodcock, and hoped that the birds might nest with us this year, as they used to do so long ago. It was jolly to see the world coming to life again, and to remember that this patch of England was my own and all these wild things, so to speak, members of my little household. As I say, I was in a very contented mood, for I had found something I had longed for all my days. I had bought Fosse Manor just after the war as a wedding present for Mary, and after two and a half years we had been settled there. My son, Peter John, was rising fifteen months, a thoughtful infant, as healthy as a young colt, and as comic as a terrier puppy. Even Mary's anxious eye could scarcely detect in him any symptoms of decline, but the place wanted a lot of looking to, for it had run wild during the war, and the woods had to be thinned, gates and fences repaired, new drains laid, a ram put in to supplement the wells, a heap of thatching to be done, and the garden borders to be brought back to cultivation. I had got through the worst of it, and as I came out of the home wood on the lower lawns and saw the old stone gables that the monks had built, I felt that I was anchored at last in the pleasantest kind of arbor. There was a pile of letters on the table in the hall, but I let them be, for I was not in the mood for any communication with the outer world. As I was having a hot bath, Mary kept giving me the news through her bedroom door. Peter John had been raising cane over a first tooth. The new shorthorn cow was drying off. Old George Wadden had got his granddaughter back from service. There was a new brood of runner ducks, and there was a missile thrush building in the box hedge by the lake. A chronicle of small beer, you will say, but I was by a long chalk more interested in it than in what might be happening in Parliament or Russia or the Hindu Kush. In fact, I was becoming such a moss-back that I had almost stopped reading the papers. Many a day, the times would remain unopened, for Mary never looked at anything but the first page to see who was dead or married. Not that I didn't read a lot, for I used to spend my evenings digging into county history and learning all I could about the old fellows that had been my predecessors. I like to think that I had lived in a place that had been continuously inhabited for a thousand years, 
Cavalier and Roundhead had fought over the countryside, and I was becoming a considerable authority on their tiny battles. That was about the only interest I had left in soldiering. As we went downstairs, I remember we stopped to look out the long staircase window, which showed a segment of lawn, a corner of the lake, and through a gap in the woods, a vista of green downland. Mary squeezed my arm. What a blessed country, she said. Dick, did you ever dream of such peace? We're lucky, lucky people. Then suddenly her face changed in that way she has. It grew very grave. I felt a shiver run along her arm. It's too good and beloved to last, she whispered. Sometimes I'm afraid. Nonsense, I laughed. What's going to upset it? I don't believe in being afraid of happiness. I knew very well, of course, that Mary couldn't be afraid of anything. She laughed, too. All the same, I've got what the Greek called Eidos. You don't know what that means, you old savage. It means that you feel you must walk humbly and delicately to appropriate the fates. I wish I knew how. She walked too delicately, for she missed the last step in our descent, ended in an undignified shuffle right into the arms of Dr. Greenslade. Paddock. I had got Paddock back after the war, and he was now my butler, was helping the doctor out of his usler, and I saw by the satisfied look on the latter's face that he was through his day's work and meant to stay to dinner. Here I had better introduce Tom Greenslade. For all my recent acquaintances, he was one I had most taken to. He was a long, lean fellow with a stoop in his back from bending over the handles of motor bicycles, with reddish hair and greeny blue eyes and freckled skin that often accompanied that of his hair. From his high cheekbones and his coloring, you would have set him down as a Scotsman. But as a matter of fact, he came from Devonshire, Exmoor, I think, though he had been so much about the world that he had almost forgotten where he was raised. I had traveled a bit, but nothing to Greenslade. He had started as a doctor in a whaling ship, then he had been in South Africa War, and afterwards a temporary magistrate up Lindenburg Way. He soon tired of that, and was for a long spell in Uganda and German East, where he became a rather swell on tropical diseases, nearly perished through experimenting on himself with fancying inoculations. Then he was in South America, where he had a good practice in Valparaiso, and then in the Malay States, where he made a bit of money in the rubber boom. There was a gap of three years. After that, he was wandering in Central Asia, partly with a fellow called Ducklet, exploring through northern Mongolia, and partly in Chinese Tibet, hunting for new flowers, for he was mad about botany. He came home in the summer of 1914, meaning to do some laboratory research work, but the war had swept him up, and he went to France as M.O. of a territorial battalion. He got wounded, of course, and after a spell in the hospital, went up to Mesopotamia, where he stayed till the Christmas of 1918, sweating hard at his job, but managing to tumble into a lot of varied adventures. For he was at Baku with Dunsterville, and had got as far as Tashkin. 
where the Bolshevists shut him up for a fortnight in a bathhouse. During the war, he had every kind of sickness, for he missed no experience, but nothing seemed to damage permanently his whipcord physique. He told me that his heart and lungs and blood pressure were as good as a lad's of twenty-one, though by this time he was on the wrong side of forty. But when the war was over, he hankered for a quiet life. So he bought a practice in the deepest and greenest quarter of England. He said his motive was the same as which in the rackety Middle Ages made men retire into monasteries. He wanted quiet and leisure to consider his soul. Quiet he may have found, but uncommon little leisure. For I never heard of a country doctor that toiled at his job as he did. He would pay three visits a day to a panel patient, which showed the kind of fellow he was, and he would be out in the small hours the birth of a gypsy child under a hedge. He was a first-class man in his profession and kept abreast of it, but doctoring was only one of a thousand interests. I never met a chap with such an insatiable curiosity about everything in heaven and earth. He lived in two rooms, in a farmhouse some four miles from us, and I dare say he had several thousand books about him. All day, and often half the night, he would scour the country in his little runabout car, and yet, when he would drop in to see me and have a drink after maybe twenty visits, he was as full of beans as if he had got just out of bed. Nothing came amiss to him in talk, birds, beasts, flowers, books, politics, religion, everything in the world except himself. He was the best sort of company, for behind all his quickness and cleverness, you felt that he was a solid bar gold. But for him, I should have taken root in the soil and put out shoots, for I have a fine natural talent for vegetating. Mary strongly approved of him, and Peter John adored him. He was in tremendous spirits that evening, for once in a way gave us reminiscence of his past. He told us about the people he badly wanted to see again. An Irish Spaniard, up north of the Argentine, who had for cattlemen a most murderous band of natives from the mountains, whom he used to keep in good humor by arranging fights every Sunday. He himself taking on the survivor with his fists and always knocking him out. A Scots trader from Hankow, who had turned Buddhist priest and intoned his prayers with a strong Glasgow accent. Most of all, a Malay pirate who, he said, was sort of St. Francis with beasts, though a perfect Nero with his fellow men. That took him to Central Asia, and he observed that if he ever left England again, he would make for those parts since they were the refuge of all the superior rascality of creation. He had a notion that something very odd might happen there in the long run. Think of it, he cried, all the places with names like spells, Wakara, Samarkand, run by seedy little gangs of communist Jews. It won't go on forever. Some day, a new Guinness Kong or Timor will be thrown up out of the maelstrom. Europe is confused enough, but Asia is ancient chaos. After dinner, we sat round the fire in the library, which I had modeled on Sir Walter Bullock's room in his place on the Kennet, as I had promised myself seven years ago. I had meant it for my own room, 
where I could write and read and smoke, but Mary would not allow it. She had a jolly paneled sitting room of her own upstairs, which she rarely entered. But though I chased her away, she was like a hen in a garden, noise came back, so that presently she stalked out of claim on the other side of my writing table. I have the old hunter's notion of order, but it was useless to strive with Mary. So now my desk was littered with her letters and needlework, and Peter John's toys and picture books were stacked in the cabinet where I kept my fly books. And Peter John himself used to make a crawl every morning inside an upturned stool on a hearth rug. It was a cold night and very pleasant by the fireside, where some scented logs from an old pear tree were burning. The doctor picked up a detective novel I had been reading and glanced at the title page. I can read most things, he said, but it beats me how you waste time over such stuff. These shockers are too easy, Dick. You can invent better ones yourself. Not I. I call that a dashed ingenious yarn. I can't think how the fellow does it. Quite simple. The writer writes up the story inductively and the reader follows it deductively. Do you see what I mean? Not a bit, I replied. Look here, I want to write a shocker, so I begin by fixing one or two facts which have no sort of obvious connection. For example, well, imagine anything you like. Let us take three things in a long way apart. He paused for a second to consider. Mm, say, an old blind woman spinning in the western highlands, a barn with a new region satyr, and a little curiosity shop in North London kept by a Jew with a dyed beard. Not much connection between the three. You invent a connection. Simple enough if you have any imagination. You weave all three into the yarn. The reader, who knows nothing about the three at the start, is puzzled and intrigued. And if the story is well arranged, finally satisfied. He is pleased with the ingenuity of the solution, or he doesn't realize that the author fixed upon the solution first, and then invented a problem to suit it. I see, I said. You've gone and taken the guilt off my favorite light reading. I won't be able any more to marvel at the writer's cleverness. I've got another objection to the stuff. It's not ingenuous enough, or rather it doesn't take account of the infernal complexity of life. It might have been all right twenty years ago when most people argued and behaved fairly logically, but they don't nowadays. Have you ever realized, Dick, the amount of stark craziness that the war has left us in the world? Mary, who was sitting sewing under a lamp, raised her head and laughed. Greenslade's face had become serious. I can speak about it frankly here, for you two are almost the only completely sane people I know. Well, as a pathologist, I'm fairly staggered. I hardly met a soul who hasn't got some slight kink in his brain as a consequence of the last seven years. With most people, it's a rather pleasant kink. They're less settled in their grooves, and they see the comic side of things quicker and are readier for adventure. But with some, it's puka madness. 
and that means crime. Now, are you going to write detective stories about that kind of world on old lines? You can take nothing for granted as you once could, and your argus-eyed, lightened-brained expert has nothing solid with which to build his foundations. I observed that the poor old war seemed to be getting blamed for a good deal that I was taught in my childhood was due to original sin. Oh, I'm not questioning your Calvinism. Original sin is always there, but in the meaning of civilization was that we had got it battered down under hatches, whereas now it's getting its head up. But it isn't only sin. It's a dislocation of the mechanics of human reasoning, a general loosening of screws. Oddly enough, in spite of parrot talk about shell shock, the men who fought suffer less from it than, on the whole, than other people. The classes that shrank the war are the worst. You see, it in Ireland. Every doctor nowadays has got to be a bit of a mental pathologist. As I say, you can hardly take anything for granted, and if you want detective stories that are not childish fantasy, you'll have to invent a new kind. Better try your hand, Dick. Not I. I am a lover of sober facts. But hang it, man. The facts are no longer sober. I could tell you... He paused, and I was expecting a yarn, but he changed his mind. Take all this chatter about psychoanalysis. There's nothing very new in the doctrine, but people are beginning to work it out into details and making considerable asses of themselves in the process. It's an awful thing when a scientific truth becomes the quarry of the half-baked. But as I say, the fact of the subconscious self is a certain as the existence of lungs and arteries. I don't believe that Dick has a subconscious self, said Mary. Oh, yes, he has. Only people who have led this kind of life have their ordinary self so well managed and disciplined, their wits so much about them, as the phrase goes, that the subconscious rarely gets a show. But I bet if Dick took to thinking about his soul, which he never does, he would find some queer corners. Take my own case. He turned towards me so that I had full view of his candid eyes and hungry cheekbones, which looked prodigious in the firelight. I belong more or less to the same totem as you, but I've long been aware that I possessed a more curious kind of subconsciousness. I have a good memory and fair powers of observation, but they're nothing to those of my subconscious self. Take my daily incident. I see and hear about a twentieth part of the details and remember about a hundredth part, that is, assuming that there is nothing special to stimulate my interest. But my subconscious self sees and hears practically everything and remembers most of it. Only I can't use the memory, for I don't know if I've got it, and can't call it into being when I wish. But every now and then something happens to turn on the tap of the subconscious, and a thin trickle comes through. I find myself sometimes remembering names, I was never aware of having heard, and little incidents and details that I had never consciously noticed. Imagination, you will say, but it isn't, for everything that the inner memory provided is exactly true. I've tested it. I could only find some way of tapping it at will. I should be an uncommonly efficient fellow. Incidentally, 
I should become the first scientist of the age, for the trouble with investigation and experiment is that the ordinary brain does not observe sufficiently keenly or remember the data sufficiently accurately. That is interesting, I said. I am not at all certain. I have noticed the same thing in myself. But what has that to do with the madness that you say is infecting the world? Simply this, the barriers between the conscious and the subconscious have always been pretty stiff in the average man, but now the general loosening up of screws, they are growing shaky, and the two worlds are getting mixed. It is like two separate tanks of fluid, where the containing walls have worn into holes, and one is percolating into the other. The result is confusion, and if the fluids are of certain character, explosions. That is why that you can't any longer take the clear psychology of most civilized human beings for granted. Something is welling up from the primeval depths to muddy it. I don't object to that, I said. We're overdone civilization, and personally, I'm all for a little barbarism, and I want a simpler world. Then you won't get it, said Glenside. He had become very serious now, and was looking towards Mary as he talked. The civilized is far simpler than the primeval. All history has been in effort to make definitions clear rules of thought, clear rules of conduct, solid sanctions, by which we can conduct our life. These are the work of the subconscious self. The subconscious is an elementary and lawless thing. If it intrudes on life, two results may follow. There will be a weakening of the power of reasoning. After all, the only thing that brings men nearest to the Almighty, and there will be a failure of nerve. I got up to get a light, for I was beginning to feel depressed by the doctor's diagnosis over times. I don't know whether he was altogether serious, for he presently started on fishing which was one of his many hobbies. There was a fair, dry fly fishing to be had in our little river, but I had taken a deer forest with Archie Roylance for the season, and Greenslade was coming up with me to try his hand at salmon. There had been no sea trout the year before in the West Highlands, and we fell to discussing the cause. He was ready with a dozen theories, and we forgot about the psychology of mankind in investigating the uncanny psychology of fish. After that, Mary sang to us, for I considered any evening a failure without that, and at half-past ten the doctor got into his old uster and departed. As I smoked my last pipe, I found my thoughts going over Gleanslade's talk. I had found a snug harbor, but how yeasty the water seemed to be outside the bar, and how erratic the tides I wondered if it wasn't shrinking to be so comfortable in a comfortless world. Then I reflected that I was owed a little peace, for I had a roughish life. But Mary's words kept coming back to me about walking delicately. I considered that my present conduct filled that bill, for I was mightily thankful for my mercies, and in no way inclined to tempt province by complacency. Going up to bed, I noticed my neglected letters on the hall table. I turned them over and saw that they were mostly bills and receipts or tradesmen circulars, but there was one addressed in handwriting that I knew, and I looked at it. I experienced a sudden sinking of the heart. It was from Lord Hartinswell, 
Sir Walter Bullivant, as was, who had now retired from the Foreign Office and was living at his place on Kennet. He and I occasionally corresponded about farming and fishing, but I had premonition that this was something different, and I waited for a second or two before I opened it. My dear Dick, this note is in the nature of a warning. In the next day or two you will be asked, nay pressed to undertake a troublesome piece of business. I am not responsible for the request, but I know of it. If you consent, it will mean the end for a time of your happy vegetable life. I don't want to influence you one way or another. I only give you notice of what is coming in order that you may address your mind and not be taken by surprise. My love to Mary and the Son. Yours. A. That was all. I had lost my trepidation and felt very angry. Why couldn't the fools let me alone? As I went upstairs, I vowed that not all the cajolery of the world would make me budge an inch from the path I had set myself. I had done enough for the public service and other people's interest, and it was jolly well time that I should be allowed to attend my own. End of chapter 1